Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Joint Cast, interviews across the world with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Episode two is an interview with the change agent for culture and engagement and the best-selling Amazon author of Lead from the Heart, Mark Crowley. Hey, it's it's great to to finally connect with you, Mark Crowley. Thanks for coming on for only the second joint cast. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much, Jim. You know, it's it's been over a year since since we since we connected via your book, and I found your book "Lead from the Heart" almost shocking in in how and how someone with your background could share so much. What 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 inspired you to write this? Oh, uh, that's a really big big question. But uh, it's it, um, if you don't mind, it's going to take a little unfolding for me to tell you there because it became a journey. But uh, essentially, what happened was I had been a senior executive for one of the largest financial institutions, and in the process, it was sold. And the company that acquired us was uh, culturally just not really a fit for me. And so I ended up staying for about a half of a year and then ended up deciding that it wasn't going to be for me. And I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity for me to uh, fulfill a personal ambition, which was to write a book. But specifically, Jim, it was to say that there were leadership practices that I learned through a 25-year career that were extremely unique in business, particularly in the dog-eat-dog kind of world that I was working in, financial services, um, that really inspired people to scale mountains for me and to do extraordinary work. And so my ambition was, I told my wife, I said, well, I'd like to spend a year and I'd like to write a book and I want to write about what these practices are because when done in sequence or together, if you will, uh, I believe that they can really elevate leadership performance in all workplaces, and so that's what I set out to do. Um, but there's a there's a preamble to this, which is that I was motivated to lead in the way that I was leading through my career uh, through a really corrupt upbringing with a father who was uh, not just a uh, an alcoholic, a functioning alcoholic, but somebody who was who really was determined to destroy my sense of well-being, to destroy my human spirit. As dark as that is, and as evil as that is, that's what he did. And so, when I came into managing people, I was oriented in a way which was I wanted to give people a different experience than what I had had. And so a friend of mine said to me, he says, you know, you're going to have to really explain these practices because people are going to think you, ha- you need a really shitty childhood in order to lead this way. And that was his language and literally what he said to me. And it stunned me because it, I had given it no thought whatsoever. I thought people would take me on face value that if you did these things that they would translate into great performance. And so what he stimulated me to do was to say, well, what is it that why is this going to be a universal practice? In other words, why would this be effective for other people? So justifying it to other people. And so it came to me one day that what I had been doing all along was affecting the hearts in people. 
And I remember to bring my wife into this again because she played a role in this. I, I said, I, I think I've just wasted a full year of my life because um, this idea of leading from the heart is perceived to be so soft, so weak, so, you know, so such an expression of from someone who doesn't understand business that even people that used to work with me are going to think, you know, I must have had a spiritual transformation or some psychological breakdown in order to say we should be leading from the heart. But I had been doing that through the course of my career and the practices that became, you know, really effectively the second half of the book. I said, well, I know I'm right. And so I started looking for evidence, and that became the second half, or literally the first half of the book, which was this evidence that, you know, through the last three decades, that the decline in job satisfaction and job engagement has been just, I mean, unbelievably steep and 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 completely consistent. So we, despite a lot of our efforts, we haven't been able to fix it. But I think the biggest part is that um, I reached out to a world-class cardiologist and just said to her, I said, you know, all along I think I've been affecting the hearts of people. I think by caring about people, by supporting people, by teaching them everything that I knew, by making people feel safe and supported, all these kinds of things, that I was affecting the hearts of people. And is there any science that could validate this? And so she reached out immediately and said, come and meet me, which kind of stunned me. And I walked into her office and this is a, she's graduated top of her class at NYU Medical School and, um, you know, is, is a world-class cardiologist, cardiosurgeon. And she just looked at me, she didn't even get out of her chair and she said, Mr. Crowley, I want to tell you something. You figured out something we're just figuring out in medicine. Isn't which that is fun? So um, long story short is that I wrote the book that you read um, through a progression. It wasn't where I thought I was going to go. But after meeting with this doctor and having her telling me that, you know, that the heart has its own form of intelligence and that I truly was affecting people and that not only was I affecting people, but that I was inspiring their greatest optimal performance I realized this is not just a book that I wanted to write in the course of a year. This is not just life changing for me, but it's it's paradigm changing for all workplace leadership. You know, in 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 the book that you sent to me, I don't know if you remember this, you inscribed it with a quote from Abraham Lincoln. And it said, in order to win a man to your cause, you must first reach his heart, the great high road to his reason. Tell us about that. Uh, that's a, just a, an amazing quote um, that I read in the team of rivals and it just completely blew my mind because what he is expressing in that quote is the foundational idea between, you know, of leading from the heart, which is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior. So in business, we want the smartest, the brainiest kinds of leaders, and we make appeals to people. You know, if we do this change, it's going to affect our shareholders. Or if we, if we implement this product successfully, you know, our customers are going to be really happy. And those are all appeals to the head. But it really comes down to how are we affecting the human being, particularly the employee, because if you're affecting the hearts in people, you're going to get people to say, OK, I want to do this. I want to help this company succeed. I want to help my boss succeed. And so when you think about it, 150 years ago, Lincoln fully understood human nature, which is to affect the emotional side of people, not just the rational side. Isn't that fun how that happened so long ago? Now, in your introduction there, you you 
gave us a, a surface scan of a lot of the topics in your book, and I want to get to those in just a moment. But before that, Mark, how do people find you? Uh, the easiest way to find me is on my website, markccrowley.com, or you can even do leadfromtheheart.com. Both of them will get to you, get to me. I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, but uh, all roads uh, will get you, you know, all roads lead to the website. So markccrowley.com. Very good. Now let's dig into some of the topics that you were starting to introduce in, in, in a few minutes ago. One is uh, the conference board of New York surveys that were chronicling declines in worker happiness. Give us a little overview of that. So in 1987, the conference board, which is a century old research organization in New York, uh, they have, uh, you know, they're just a research organization. They don't have a dog in the fight and they objectively started to look at job satisfaction. And in 1987, they said, you know, we ought to be paying attention to how people feel about their jobs, how people feel about their workplaces and leadership. And since 87, it's been on a steep and steady decline ever since. And uh, really, we're at a point now where it's really interesting because I just wrote an article with the woman who's the head of research at the conference board. And uh, th we, they just announced that we're at 50.5%, meaning we're slightly above half of Americans um, are satisfied in, in job satisfied, happy at work, if you will. And it was so interesting because so much of the press said more, more of us are happy at work than ever. And I thought, well, you're missing the whole point, which is half of Americans aren't. That's a stunning number of people. And so we have exploited people in a lot of different ways that we don't really understand or really think about in our day-to-day decision-making that creates a workforce where people are just not that happy. And so interestingly and concurrently, not only has the conference board been studying engagement, but, but so too has Gallup. And what they found is that, you know, that this number seems to be immovable. Um, I just looked at it yesterday, coincidentally, and we're at 32 percent um, engagement, according to Gallup right now. That number has not moved. And yet this is the biggest topic in business and has been for the last five years. How do we elevate engagement? And really, my belief is that we're not going to be able to do it until we, until we really fundamentally reinvent how we lead. So we keep doing the same things, expecting a different outcome, but we need to orient leaders to be doing the things that human beings need in order to thrive in the 21st century. That's the foundational idea of leading from the heart. But really what it is is saying, we, rather than try to exploit people, be generous with people. Rather than try to take as much from people as possible, give back teach them, grow them, give them an opportunity to feel like they're doing meaningful work and to contribute and to grow, which is a huge component of engagement. A lot of the things that we think, we think people just come to work for a paycheck, but they're looking for and needing so much more. And leaders who understand this and give back to people, get back far more than they ever imagined. And so this is why I think you're seeing some organizations today that are truly thriving in terms of their ability to attract great people and keep them and drive you know, an expanded bottom line and why other organizations are, are seeing people leave and they're not being able to bring them in because I think people are beginning to look and saying, what's the culture here? What's the reputation of the leaders? And those that are doing it are excelling and those that aren't are, are paying a price. But in the big picture, we still 
still have very low job satisfaction, very low engagement, and it's really sort of the scorecard for how we lead today, and it's kind of an F if you have to, you know, give it a grade. You know, I think some of what you just said corresponds to the four drivers you say explain 67% of overall movement of employee engagement, organizational health, managerial quality, extrinsic rewards, and workplace readiness. Talk to us a little bit about managerial quality. Managerial quality? Yes. Tell me a little bit more about what you're looking for, and I'll make sure that I give you a good answer. I'm, what is it, and what can be done within that factor to improve employee engagement? I think the biggest thing that, that if, if organizations made, could make one change, that could have the biggest impact. I think it would be in making the the firm decision that they're no longer going to hire people into management roles at any level where that person doesn't have a track record of elevating other people, meaning that in the interview you say, well, Jim, uh, tell us two or three people that have worked for you that through efforts of your own initiative, you helped uh, grow into more senior roles than where they came from. Some people are just completely stumped and can't give you an answer. Some will try to fake an answer because you need one in the interview. But what you're really looking for is, I have people who work for me and this is what my plan is to elevate them. This is how I teach them, this is how I grow them, this is how I give them opportunities that match up to their career aspirations. Here's how I recognize them, here's how I made them feel comfortable and safe. These kinds of things is really the greatest impact on engagement as far as I can tell. So meaning that if you're working for someone you know cares about you, supports you, is fundamentally an advocate for you, your response to that is going to be to do extraordinary work. Um, and so if organizations just made that one change, if they said, you know, I've got a guy here who continues to get great results, his resume shows great numbers consistently, but there's nothing in his resume or nothing in the interview that comes out that demonstrates that this guy or person isn't more just completely singularly focused on their own success, their own growth, their own recognition, um, then that person really shouldn't come into management. Interestingly, I call this a caring gene. And the reason I do is because um, the Gallup organization has proved that just one in three people on the planet has this inclination, and which corresponds, I think, oddly enough, to the fact that we only have 30% engagement. So if you just sort of mathematically say randomly, we've got 30% of people that are engaged and only one in three people on the planet has an inclination to care sort of stands up, right? I don't know if it does, but it, it, it is intriguing to me. But nevertheless, what this means is, is that the kind of people who really are great leaders are rare in our society. And so rather than say, well, this guy was great in this previous role as a salesman, so we need to make him a sales manager, or he was a terrific accountant and we need to make him the accountant manager. We, what we really want to do is to say, does this person advocate for other people? So the model that I would give you is to say, look at sports. 
you know, look at look at baseball or football and look at the coaches. These aren't people that are competing with their players. They're trying to bring out the best in their players. They're literally coaching them. At the you know, it's two minutes left and they're down by seven seven points. The the coach doesn't say, Well, I'm gonna put myself in the game here to make sure we win. He's coached and developed and trained his people in order to do that and gives people the confidence to do that and encourages them and recognizes them. That's sort of the model that we need today. I really, truly think if we just made that one change, we could have a massive increase in engagement across the country and the world. It's a fantastic answer, Mark, and I really appreciate not just you hitting that really hard from an advocacy standpoint, but also mentioning coaching. In the Academy Leadership Workshops I facilitate regularly, one of the nine workshops in the three-day Leadership Excellence courses focuses on coaching. And one of, over the past several years of facilitating these, these workshops, I've found that when I'm, when I'm stressing what it really means to be a coach, it seems to be where the most transformation is required just from a point of view. And interestingly enough, I fall back on on sports as an as an analogy as well. I, I do have to call out chapter four in your book, and I know I've mentioned this to you in correspondence since I wrote my review, but to me, uh, chapter four, I call it the soul of the book. And you know, the title's engagement is a decision of the heart. And then you went further and grabbed me by, by uh, calling out uh, Gary Zukoff, who I was uh, referred to actually in college in the in the 80s to to read and and that was very very transformative but between Gary Zukoff you know talking about religion becoming a matter of the heart and the science becoming a matter of the mind dig a little bit deeper into that you started this a little bit a little bit ago but i want you to go a little bit deeper well i i think that um such a big question, and I, sometimes I feel like I'm going long with my answers. But you're you're asking such fantastic questions. There's just so much I'd like love to cover here. But I, I'll, I'll share this: that you know, this idea of leading from the heart is still met with tremendous resistance in business, um, really, and, and sometimes discouragingly so, where people just like instinctively think that this is um, somehow inappropriate, somehow soft, and is going to backfire, or at least isn't going to be effective. And so the the orientation of a, a Gary Zukov is really on the spiritual side. And so I'm reluctant to say what I'm going to say, but I know it's truth, which is that work is spiritual. And that in, the more that I've dug in, and I've written many, many articles and the research and that aligns to you know this lead from the heart thinking, and the more that I've done this, the more I realize that it's spiritual fulfillment that people are looking for, whether they realize it or not. And we have this massive taboo in business about talking about any of this because we conflate it with religion and we think religion hasn't had a place in work, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about meaning. We're talking about significance. We're talking about purpose. We're talking about getting up in the morning and saying, does my life make a difference? Am I, am I here just to, just to go in and 
punch a clock every day? Is that what my life is? And I think that this is why, you know, we see the statistics that show how unhappy people are, particularly in America, and the, the political problems that we have and the divisiveness. It's because I, I think that we've lost sight of our responsibility in leadership, that if we're going to have people working for us, that they need so much more than just a paycheck. And we have this idea in business that it has to be all about the mind and that the heart will get you into trouble. And what I'm here to say is that we've got it all wrong. We need smart people in business. You have to have data, you have to have analytics, but really human beings, the heart is really what defines us as human beings. And if we accept that instead of resist that, then this notion of spirituality that, that Gary Zukov and others talk about really comes into play. And what it means is that treat people more with care, treat people with more respect. And it's interesting because um, this is now relates a validation of what I just said on the brain side. So there's a professor at University of um, Arizona State University, um, and all of a sudden, I can't think of his name, but uh, he's, he's written a book called Influence. His name is Robert Caldini, and he is a, he's written an absolutely fantastic book called Influence. And in one of, the, one of his, um, his thesis is that we are hardwired as human beings to reciprocate. He said, you know, going back to caveman days, if somebody had a piece of meat and you didn't, then they would share it with you. But the expectation was when you had meat, you would immediately share it back. And he said, you know, this continues to be in our DNA. Somebody comes to your house and says, hey, Jim, I made a dozen brownies and I actually ended up with more than I expected. And so I want to bring them over. He said, our instinct is we want to give back immediately. We want to go, oh, here's a bottle of wine, or what can I give you? We just have this in us. And so what I found is that when you are really caring about people, when they know that you're going to try to teach them, when you know that you know what's going on in their personal life and you acknowledge it, you know, how's your mom doing? I know she was struggling. It affects people so deeply. That's the spiritual aspect. Let me help you grow in your career so that you get where you want to get to. That's the spiritual aspect. But Caldini's point is, is that we're hardwired to reciprocate when people give to us. And so if you're just a hardline business guy and you're just looking for a way to get better performance, I'm saying it stands up. Treat people with care and they will reciprocate and do what you need them to do in the business environment. But at the end of the day, we're really talking about human beings. And I, I think that, you know, this balance between mind and heart, a lot of people are beginning to realize is truth. But there's so many leaders out there and organizations that continue to think that this might get them into trouble. So they're just putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And I'm just encouraging them to say, take the dive, test it out, take a team of people and just give them everything that I'm talking about and see how those teams perform relative to your other teams. And I think they'll be blown away. This is, this is a real big deal. And I, I like the part where you called out Drs. Uh, Guarneri and Pearsall and also uh, Bruce Crayer because it, it appears that there's, you know, for the, let's say for the more analytical reptiles out there, and there's, there's, then there's plenty who, if they're, if they're not like that, they've been conditioned to be like that. They need, they need the data. It sounds like there's physical qualities about the heart that we're just starting to learn about. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? 
Well, you're referencing um, two, two people. Um, well, the Institute of Heart Math is an organization for the past 30 years that has been intentionally studying the intelligence of the heart. And really what they've, just, what they've been able to determine, and, and other researchers are proving the same things, by the way. These guys just get a lot of recognition because they were the first ones to really focus on it. But we now know that the heart is, has its own mini brain, if you will, that the heart and the mind are connected through the vagus nerve and that the heart and mind are sending communication back and forth to one another. And so one of the more profound validations that I got was from um, the head of research at the Institute of, of, of Heart Math, Dr. Roland McCready, who's been there since the founding 30 years ago. And he said, he goes, you know, Mark, what you probably don't realize is, but when you were unintentionally, because I, I think I did it unconsciously for many years, really caring about your people and supporting people and coaching them and making sure that they felt appreciated and all the kinds of things that I outlined in the book. He said, you don't realize how brilliant you were because when people have feelings that they're being supported, when they're safe, when they're feeling appreciated, when they're effectively feeling good, that sends signals to the brain. And when that communication, what he calls coherence, um, is ideal, it's when people are feeling positive emotions, a steady diet of positive feelings and emotions. And so what he said is, is that you're putting people into their optimal levels of performance by doing that. And this is scientifically proven. And so when I'm talking about the heart, I'm not talking about the romantic heart. I'm not talking about a theoretical heart. I'm literally talking about the physical heart. While it has the spiritual aspect that we just talked about, at the end of the day, the reason that I called the book Lead from the Heart is because when you do the things that I'm talking about, you affect people so profoundly, their human spirit, if you will, that they just, again, reciprocate and are so inspired, so motivated, in the most positive and sustainable way to do great work, that this is why we need to lead this way because it's, it's the only way of win-win. Squeezing people may help a company make money. It may help, may help a leader hit his goals, but it doesn't do anything as we're seeing through engagement and job satisfaction and so many other metrics. We're not doing anything for the people that work there. But if you do something that really truly, you know, fortifies and, 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 and gives people what they fundamentally need, you're going to get a lift in performance that will just blow your mind. And that's the leap that many leaders can't take. But this is what science is proving. I love it. And I just got a couple more questions. These are really nice answers that, that, that I think are capturing the spirit of the book that I wanted conveyed in this joint cast. You put, you put in the latter part of the book, ways to connect on a personal level. And a couple of those I want to point out. You put, demonstrate your intent to grow them and develop a plan, and then use the discussions to grow your own leadership effectiveness. Roll those two together for us. 
it, it, it really, um, one of the interesting things that Gallup has confirmed is that growth is probably, you know, in, in the top three drivers of engagement. And so what this means is, is we often think, well, you know, this person only has this job, so what do they need to grow? We just need them to do this all day long. And, and what happens is that people just get dull and there's, there, there's a sensation that I'm not moving forward and growing. And so it, it's really making the decision that I'm going to invest in everyone and I'm going to give them opportunities to learn more, um, become more competent, become more self-assured in their jobs. Some people want to be CEO. Some people are completely happy doing the work that they're doing. It doesn't matter. And so the the other side of this is learning what it is that people want and helping them get that. And so the only way that you can do that is by sitting down with people and saying, tell me about you. Tell me about your ambitions. Tell me what would make you feel happiest in terms of learning new things. I once had a manager. So years ago, I was a regional manager for a financial institution and had, if you know, those bank branches where you go to get mortgage loans and checking accounts and so forth. I had 30 of them working for me and I had 30 branch managers and I brought them in every month. And. We were a highly effective team. I wrote about, about uh, one of those teams in the book, and uh, we were really, really just doing phenomenal work. And one of my top, top managers came to me once, and she said, I would like to plan your monthly meetings. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, I, I, I see the work you go into to plan the agendas and prepare the rooms and have everything ready and organized and um, pick the speakers. I would like to do that for you. My immediate instinct was, well, that's going to take her away from doing the very thing that I need her to do, which is continue to be one of the top performing managers in a 4,500 branch company. So she was in the top 10. I didn't want to see that go away. And she was smarter than I was. And she said, Mark, I already am reading your mind. You're already afraid I'm not going to keep doing my work. And if I make the promise to you that I will continue to do a great job, will you let me do this? And uh, my defenses were down. I said, well, absolutely. So what happened was is that I later learned. So she went on to, and I never really understood why she wanted to do this in the first place. She just said, I happen to really love planning meetings and doing parties, those kinds of things. Even though it was a business setting, that's how she saw it. And so I saw her. I ended up getting a promotion a couple of years later and ran into her. And she said, I just want to tell you something. She said, your peers try to recruit me repeatedly to come into their regions. And she said, and they offered me great branches, great opportunities. And she said, you want to know why I never left? And I said, I would love to know. And she said, it's because you let me plan your meetings. And I said, I do not understand. And she said, it's because you were willing to give me what I needed. I needed something in addition to what I'm doing. I love my job, but I can't do it all day long. I like having some variety. And when you gave me that variety, I thought, who's ever going to give me all that I need? You're a great boss, but I could have gone to take another opportunity, but it was your willingness to give me what I wanted and needed. So a lot of times, Jim, we think, well, I'm going to give this person this training, but it, we have to find out what it is that they want and sometimes be willing to say, you know, that's not going to hit the bottom line today, but it's going to affect that person on a deep level. And this is what I mean about affecting hearts. She was unwilling to go 
because of how deeply connected she felt to me as her leader because of what I was doing for her. So it's a combination of really learning what people want. I also wrote about another person who told me, I want your job. I really want to have that kind of a job in this organization and you need to help me. And so I laid out a plan and we agreed on it. I helped her and she went on to take that job and continues to be in it to this day and has excelled in it. And I think, you know, as I look back on my career, the greatest satisfaction that I get is knowing that people like Glenda, who I was just describing to you, and Cecilia, the person who became a regional manager, that these are people that look back on my interaction with them fondly, not as someone who chose to exploit them for the time that they were there, but someone who made their lives better. Fantastic. Here's a here's a fun question. What's something about yourself, Mark, that that this audience is very unlikely to know about you? I don't know that this is going to move the narrative in any way, but <laughs> I, I, I tend to be extremely hard on myself. That's probably um, it's connected to my upbringing, unfortunately, and you work through a lot of those things. But I I, I tend to be. Um, extraordinarily hard on myself and so maybe the best way to spin this would be to say in you know in the interest of your listeners that um, I when I was writing the book and I was preparing the book I was starting to think about what I wanted to do and was preparing sort of an outline I read a book by Anne Lamott Annie Lamott um, and it's called Bird by Bird and it's really about writing, but it's one of the most philosophically brilliant books that I've ever read. And one line that she wrote in it, which I think is what I would love to impart on your listeners, is a lesson that I wish I had learned much earlier in my life, which is, in her words, be militantly on your own side. And just the whole idea that you could be... Um, you know, sort of like against yourself is so fundamentally flawed, right? You, you, we need to believe in ourselves. We need to trust ourselves. We need to believe in the good, see the good, be optimistic in ourselves. And so anyone who has an inclination to be hard on themselves, I think that's just something you're going to want to undo because it doesn't serve you well. And that was really why her, her line was so powerful for me, because it's like, how much better off can you be if you're militantly on your own side? I just love that. It's fantastic. So uh, wrapping this up, what, what projects are you working on now? What can you share with us that you're working on now? Um, well, you know, in the big picture, I'll just put it this way, that, you know, I still know that the, the world is still resisting in many respects, this idea of putting lead from the heart, you know, the heart idea uh, in leadership. And I had many, many people tell me that, uh, that I would, uh, we'd be unwise to put the word heart in the book title. But really for me, what it came down to was the belief that I know what I'm talking about is truth. And there's an inevitability that people will come to understand that it's truth. But in the meantime, I can be um, the, the probably the best pipe piper for that. 
and for that idea, if you will. And so what I've continued to do, I've written nearly three dozen articles for Fast Company magazine, uh, all on this topic. Um, several articles uh, for LinkedIn, additionally, and, and other publications. But really, what I'm trying to do with those articles is a drip by drip effect, where people come to realize that you know you read one article and you hear the word "lead from heart" and you're skeptical, and you read one of my articles and you go, "Oh, that's interesting," and you read another one, and you go, "Huh, you know, that guy he's making some sense here." And I'm hoping ultimately that you know enough people put those pieces together and say, when you add up everything he's talking about, it's irrefutable, you know. And so I just continue to look for organizations, people, leaders, uh, even books, um, fiction and nonfiction, anything that I can get my hands on where I can show people that what I'm talking about is 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 really the way we need to move forward, and. Um, it seems to be working. There's been just a great response to those articles, and the book now is being taught in four universities. So I think, you know, the the, the educators are looking at where the future of leadership is going, and they're saying it's got to go in this direction. So I've I've had a lot of validation in this, but it's the it's the the business guy that I'm still trying to win over here, and so my work continues to be to get that person to say. You're right. I've got to change. I'm willing to change because this is going to this is going to be in my best interest and my organization's best interest. Well, I really appreciate that. I also agree with you. This is much more um, a long endurance marathon type type run than than a 100 yard dash. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate not just that you had the courage to write the book, but that you're you're living it as well with all of the follow up. Don't be surprised if, as in the past, I ask you to, to get some copies of your books to leaders and organizations that I'm working with that I believe either lead from the heart or on the fence deciding whether or not they really want to do that because your work and what you're doing is, is going gonna, is gonna to push them over to the good side. And for that, uh, I thank you. I thank you, Mark. And I thank you very much for those very kind and generous words and for the opportunity to, to speak with you today. Um, it, it, it does stun me sometimes, to be honest with you, that this is uh, evolution, not revolution, because I think organizations look at their engagement. And they're saying, we really got to fix this. We have to find a way to solve this. And yet they, they look at, you know, this this idea and they go, well, that can't be it. And they think that because that's what we've been teaching. And I find it really interesting that the top business schools in this country um, including Michigan, Stanford, Cal. Um, these are organizations, Wharton, that are completely rewriting their curriculums entirely to say, we cannot just teach our MBA students how to manipulate an income statement and how to get financials to align well so that we hit our quarterly numbers. We have to teach our leaders what it is that inspires human beings. And so I'm highly encouraged that the next generation that are coming out of business schools today, and when I look at the students that are reading my book in four universities, I've never had one come back and say, oh, this doesn't make any sense. They're saying, yeah, this is absolutely what we have to do. So it's the person that's in senior leadership today that doesn't get this, that doesn't believe in it, that resists it, that fights it. 
but the leaders that are coming behind are being educated and being groomed to lead this way. So I know it's going to happen. I just, you know, want it to happen in my lifetime. How's that? I think we're in agreement there, and there's no question that you and I are are allies in this. Or in in, in my own language, it's it's uh it's very choink like. But um, thanks again for this for the second uh, choint cast, and I think I think we're well on the way here, Mark. Cheers. Thank you for listening today. Make sure to follow us on Twitter hashtag choink c h o i n q and visit www.choink.com to sign up for an upcoming leadership excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk. 